this is a common struggle that we get tunnel vision and obsessive over the thing that we are managing and we miss opportunities to pursue greater impact by collaborating and working with people who don't share the same business card that we have. Have you ever felt like you were fighting against other leaders or organizations as you fight for your cause? Honestly, this drives me crazy. When I see other leaders or organizations doing basically the same thing or having to feel like they push another group away or talk about how they're not doing it well, but we're doing it the best, this drives me nuts. And honestly, I think there's a lot of redundancy in what we're doing. Sometimes we're doing the same thing. We just don't know that somebody else somewhere is doing it really well. And so I would love nothing more than to hear collaboration and partnership come out of this podcast episode. We're going to talk today about abundance. And many times we have the scarcity mentality where we think there's not enough to go around. There's not enough donors or ideas or space or constituency or whatever our group may be. We think we have to fight to be the best and be at the top. And many times we do that, pushing others down in the process. So I think this is a really good and practical episode with my friend, Chris Horst. He works with Hope International and he sees leaders collaborating all over the globe right now to tackle big issues and small issues alike. I love this conversation with Chris. It's really practical. And he comes from the trenches of watching these things happen and actually starting some partnership conversations right now as we speak with some pretty incredible organizations. Stay Forth has several partnerships. And one of those we're really excited about is a new partnership with Compassion International. We're partnering on some experiences. We're partnering to care for some leaders and pastors. We're going to go across the world on a couple of trips along with them. So we're just really excited to partner with amazing organizations and leaders that already have influence, that already have impact, and are doing amazing things. So please don't hear us say, we have the market cornered. At Stay Forth, we believe that God is putting unique design on other people in other areas, and he's also giving them unique impact that he hasn't given to us. So we love partnership, we love collaboration, and I love this conversation with my friend, Chris Horst. Hey guys, I'm excited to welcome to the podcast a friend of mine, Chris Horst. Chris, thanks for joining us today on the podcast, man. Happy to be with you. Thanks for having me, Alan. So uh, really funny to have Chris on the podcast as I think about we've both been in our places, actually just about an hour away from each other. Chris comes to us from Denver, but um, travels much throughout the year, gets to see all kinds of God's work everywhere. But we actually met each other on the baseball field. And so we were fellow pitchers together on the same team in college. Uh, Chris, I think we're a little bit different these days uh, with our kids and our leadership responsibilities than we were in those days. Yeah. You know, I like to tell people I was a very average pitcher for a very bad team in a very small college conference. And, and I'll stand by that. Um, so I had a Jersey and I, I played on the team, but yeah, life is a little bit different than it was as a 19 year old running around the, the ball field. Guilty as charged. I was on the same bad team. Um, Chris, I'm just excited to dig in a little bit and um, really excited for your new book uh, that you co-wrote, Rooting for Rivals. We want to dig in today about scarcity and abundance mentality. And I find that many times with ministry leaders that gets in the way, this scarcity idea of there's not enough 
Uh, and in this book, you're talking a lot about collaboration. So we want to talk about that. But first, give us a little look at your life uh, from your home life to your work life. Uh, what do you put your best time and energy toward each week? So I'm a dad of four kids, three boys and a girl. Um, Allie and I have been married for 10 years. We live, we've lived in the same house for most of that time here in, in Denver and in Northeast Park Hill. And I've worked at Hope International as our chief advancement officer and I've been at Hope for 13 years. So Hope is a global Christ-centered microfinance organization. And we work in 16 countries around the world. And, and I get to spend a lot of my time sharing about Hope, introducing people to Hope, taking people to see Hope's work. So that, that's, that's my day job. Uh, and then I spend my evenings uh, throwing the baseball with my kids, wrestling uh, them in the basement during the winter months. And, and hiking and getting outside as much as we possibly can. Awesome. I love following along with you guys on, on social media, and I love when we get the chance to catch up. So uh, talk to us about the process of writing Rooting for Rivals. I know that writing a book is a labor of love. It's not a fun process. Uh, so why did you put so much time and energy into co-writing this book? Well, it started with wanting to go public with a real challenge that both Peter and I have which is we are inclined to focus on our own thing. And we are pre predisposed to obsess about the organizations where we work, the, the influence that we have, the organization that we're stewarding. And we wanted to tie our hands to being about something beyond the boundaries of Hope International and beyond the boundaries of the organization where we work. And we've heard enough feedback from fellow leaders that, this is a common struggle that we get tunnel vision and obsessive over the thing that we are managing. And we miss opportunities to pursue greater impact by collaborating and working with people who don't share the same business card that we have. And yet a lot of the pressures we feel in our work are about growing our thing really independently of anyone else. So I'm actually recording this today in our collaboration space uh, that we call 719 Commons. That's the area code here. Seeing a lot of exciting things happen in what we call an ecosystem. I know you're experiencing that in Denver as well at a local level, even nationally. I'm sensing this great desire for collaboration. So I'm seeing some things that, that excite me. Um, what excites you today when you see collaboration between organ organizations and networks? Is that tide turning or changing? I hope so. Uh, I sure, certainly feel like it is, and I'm encouraged by that. Four years ago, we, Peter and I were in a conversation with a foundation executive from Tennessee who shared that over the course of a few months, he had three different Bible translation ministries come to him and ask his foundation to fund the translation efforts for the same people group, for the same language. And, and he kind of responded to, to each of them over the course of those meetings and said, do you know that there are these other ministries out there that are working on the exact same project, the exact same translation, the exact same language? And they weren't aware that there was this groundswell of organizations all attempting to do the same thing and duplicating their efforts. And that catalyzed a number of kind of concurrent conversations in the Bible translation movement to ask the question, what would happen if we decided to put down our own agendas, uh, lay aside our own business cards, and, and really come together under one banner 
uh, to get the project done, to get the Bible translated into every language. And this become one of, became one of the most encouraging stories that developed even while we were writing the book. But the projects under the banner Illuminations really has taken off. And, and I, I'm happy to share more specifics, but the, the basics are this. Uh, it took seven of the 10 largest Bible translation organizations to commit to being together face-to-face one day a month. And so they meet one day a month at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Uh, it's the, the senior executives of all those organizations, and they're sharing their resources with each other. So they're sharing their you know, support on the actual translators, the marketing, fundraising. They're doing all of that collaboratively as opposed to independently. And what's crazy is the impact that it's having on this movement. Independently, these leaders assess that they would get the Bible translated into every language on earth by the year 2150. That was their sort of shared independent analysis. And now as a result of this movement, which just started a few years ago, they're saying it's going to be done by 2035 or 2033. So around 115, 117 years, they're expecting they will cut off their their bigger mission because of working together. So that's one of the most powerful stories to me as someone who cares about Bible translation and doesn't work in that industry, but to see the, the way in which whole generations of people are going to get the Bible in their language earlier because ministries that share the same overall mission, even though they differ on some of the finer points, are working together. All right, man, I got to I gotta dig into this because from my angle, I'm hearing tons about the rise of mastermind groups. Again, it's kind of always happened behind the scenes and now getting people from similar agencies uh, or areas or spheres together. Uh, collaboration, literal co-working spaces happening, um, ministries collaborating on different projects. So Chris, how much do you think of that is simple proximity? You're saying they're getting together once a month. And how much of that do you think is related to a bigger goal that they're trying to tackle together? Or is it some of both of those? I think it's definitely both. I think it's a great start to have friendships with people that are working ideally in close proximity to the issues that you're working on. But where it's most powerful and where things can really move quickly is when, if you think about a Venn diagram, like there's a lot of overlap in the circles between what you're about and your peers. Another example that kicked off a few months ago was in the campus ministry world. Uh, so InterVarsity and Crew have for, formed this joint venture called Every Campus. You can read more about it, everycampus.com. But it's the first there's been friendship for a while, but it's the first effort to actually say, what would it look like for us to proactively pursue a Christian college ministry on every campus in the country? And, and so they're working now. There are 27 different campus ministries that have joined the effort. You can go on the website. It's still in very like the very beginning stages, but you can go on the website. And actually, it's the first map of its kind that's public uh, where you can see where there are Christian ministries and where there aren't. And, and so the, the leaders of these organizations are saying, we've always been friends. We've always known about our various differences and where we had overlapping strategy and overlapping kind of geography. But now they're actually working together to say, all right, if Veritas Forum is going to go there and CCO is going to go here and InterVarsity and NAVS are going there, then crew, we're going to go this direction. And that to me is that's the, like taking collaboration to the next level. So proximity matters. Friendship matters affinity and understanding of what other people are doing matters. But when you have shared mission, uh, that's where things get really exciting. I love it. We talk about friendship 
and how that can develop into partnership. Let's try something together. And then ultimately our hearts connect somewhere in there. We say, maybe we should put more of our skin in the game here. Like Mm. we're not exactly killing it in our area. And I think we almost have to get to that point where it's not working or more of the same is is maybe at best okay. Um, But we're not going to have a dent in this campus or in this community or in this city or this industry. So man, I, I love this. This is talking a lot of the heart language of those listening. The collaboration piece is uh, is obviously really exciting to me as I think kind of network and, and connector. Sometimes, Chris, I wonder if they were just a connector who were intentional about that, then maybe people could actually know each other. Maybe we could not have some of the same redundancy. Um, are you seeing some connectors out there, Chris, that are sort of intentionally having their eyes on getting these different groups of people together? I definitely think there's, in these stories, there there is someone that's taking the lead and, and putting their own chips on the table. I think even more than an independent connector, often it's the lead institution or lead organization within a sector. There's like someone from that organization who is given permission to pursue, pursue things outside the boundaries of the organizational mission or, or outside the boundaries of the organizational geography uh, within yeah. the mission, but outside the geography. And when you have someone at the top of an industry saying we're in, so in the case of Bible translation, it was the seed company. In the case of campus ministry, it was InterVarsity and crew. Then you find that a lot of people want to be a part of it. But it starts, I think what we've observed is often starts with that, that big player that's willing to say we're about this. And, and that gives almost permission for the smaller organizations and leaders from those places to say what well, they're going to devote time to it then. Certainly, we should as well. So as you and Peter wrote Rooting for Rivals and all the research phases and um, editing and all of that, what surprised you as you studied different organizations, groups, or teams? One thing that jumped out in both the writing process and the own self-reflection that it forced was how old these challenges are that we face. And in the book, we use the seven deadly sins as the framework for examining how faith-based nonprofits and and leaders of those nonprofits go off course. And and really, there's nothing new about the struggles that we face. These are very, like as old as time, we've seen some of these issues play out. Think about Cain and Abel and the envy that existed in that relationship, where you look at Saul and David and the ways in which pride and envy kind of got in the way of the bigger mission. So these are old problems, but uh, looking at it through that lens of that the seven deadly sins became a really helpful framework. You know, for me, the thing that's most has been most difficult is really a pretty deep, um, deep seated pride that I have about Hope International and our work. And when I look back in my early years and the way I talked about hope the way I framed it, it was almost like if we weren't the best, then I couldn't speak about hope with confidence. Like I, I, I had to posture, like we had it all together and admit no vulnerability, like share no challenge and just communicate this, this organization as this perfect vision for how we eradicate poverty and share the gospel around the world. And over time, God's really convicted me of my own pride and, and that like being the root sin that gets in the way of what he wants to do in and through me. So kind of naming that and taking proactive steps to celebrate the amazing work that other organizations are up to in the world 
and, and sharing my platform as best I can to elevate and put a spotlight on what other people are doing has been a great countermeasure to my own sinfulness. Thanks for your vulnerability in that. And we can all identify, I think, especially as we're younger, we think we're out to do it the best. Um, and how many times that's just the, the enemy of being able to work together and actually accomplish something great. So man, I just appreciate your honesty there. Uh, why don't we collaborate more, Chris? One of the practical dynamics that gets in the way of collaboration, well, I'll, I'll share two things, one cultural and one organizational. So the organizational challenge is that our boards and our governance structures aren't set up to encourage this. So our donors are holding us accountable at, in the nonprofit world. They're holding us accountable to accomplish our goals. And very rarely do our goals include any sort of collaboration and partnership. So our boards are saying and our donors are saying, uh, we want Hope International to have excellent programs all around the world. And, and excellent programs is sort of independent of anybody else. And so there isn't sort of baked into our incentive system uh, accountability for being about collective impact and about work that extends beyond our boundaries. So that's an organizational challenge that gets in the way of collaboration and partnership. And then a cultural uh, one that has been a barrier, but I actually find this, I mean, not me, but this is fact that it's changing in our country, specifically in the U.S., is I think when you're a dominant majority culture, it it breeds laziness and it breeds isolation and frag fragmentation. I remember, you know, five years ago, maybe it was more like seven years ago, we had a donor that uh, stopped giving to hope because we didn't partner with one specific denomination in this one country in the world. And, and the irony was there weren't, and I can't share any specifics because it's a closed context, but there weren't any denominations in that community. Like the, the church was too small. They had, they were all like, there was basically one denomination uh, in that community. And, and in the U S because the Christian subculture has been a dominant majority culture for a long time in the U S it's allowed us to just splinter and splinter and splinter and fragment because there wasn't really any pressure to work together. And I would suggest that, you know, based on a lot of the cultural trends, uh, things are really changing in the U S and it's actually causing us to look at the people beside us and say, we, we actually agree on a lot more than we disagree on. And, and we have more in common than I thought we might. Uh, and, and I think that's creating a lot of opportunity to, to partner together is that reality of how culture is changing. One, one final data point on that, uh, the Pew Trust has been assessing what Americans say about their levels of trust about the church and organized religion in this country. And over the last 30 years, the number of people who highly trust the church has been cut in half from 42% of Americans to 21%. And the number of Americans, percentage of Americans who highly distrust the church, again, over the last 30 years has more than tripled from 7% to 24%. So we've seen the number of people, our neighbors that trust us implicitly cut in half and those that really distrust us triple. So I think that that's the cultural dynamic that 30 years ago prevented collaboration. And I would say today is propelling it. Yeah, it's the necessity right. when we don't have a cultural advantage anymore. When we, you know, in air quotes are under-resourced, right? That's compared to, um, you know, we're over-resourced compared to so many other countries. But when we realize we have to collaborate, I mean, collaborate or die, 
in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think we can collaborate and, and thrive. So I'm seeing that perhaps that's part of what's happening within our cities and this desire for kind of these city reaching movements. How do we care for, love, uh, and collaborate within our cities? Because we know finally that we can't do it alone. Um, take us somewhere to another continent or another country, Chris. How is this different than our Western context uh, in, say, somewhere in the continent of Africa or somewhere in South America? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I do think what we're observing in in closed contexts where the, it's really hostile uh, for the church, you're seeing a lot of unity, and and you don't wish on uh, persecution. We don't hope for hardships yet. God does miraculous work there. And and so that, I mean, whether in India or China or, you know, really anywhere in the Muslim majority world where Christians face a lot more pressure uh, and there's a lot more family hostility to people becoming Christians there, there you're seeing incredible unity in the church, not perfect unity by any stretch. And I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush, uh, but I do think as pressure increases, it does create that opportunity to kind of look beside you and, and see who's there. Good word. Um, can you define the fundamental difference between a scarcity mentality and an abundance or a generosity mentality for us? I'll share... I'll share one story and then that leads into the definition. But when I first started in my work at Hope International, I remember giving a presentation to a bunch of Christian ministry leaders, pastors, and business owners in Highlands Ranch. And I was in this church, influential church, sharing about hope. And at the very end of my presentation, I had this slide which compared hope to all of our amazing peer organizations doing child sponsorship, anti-human trafficking work, working on clean water. And I did like this dollar for dollar comparison of how much it costs to serve one person a year with hope versus all these organizations. And of course, you know, hope came out the clear winner in that presentation and all of our peer organizations look like total losers. And one of the pastors who was in the room just asked the question in Q and a said, you know, he's like, I'm, I'm curious, like, is this really an apples to orange or apples to apples comparison? Cause it feels like, you're not doing the same thing. And it feels a little odd to compare freeing someone from sex uh, trafficking versus helping them start a small business. And it was this really convicting question because I think in reality, I had a scarcity mindset and I, I felt going into that presentation, like the only way that I could possibly get people to get behind hope is by proving that our intervention is so much more cost effective than all of these losers. And in reality, no one's motivated by that. Uh, No one is actually going to be motivated to get involved with someone in a significant way by putting down your peers who are doing exceptional work, by the way. Uh, And a lot of donors and supporters of those organizations that I was comparing us to were in the room. So an abundance mentality would say, here's what we're doing. We've got our challenges and it's one piece of the equation And these other organizations are doing exceptional work alongside us and we need it all as opposed to we have this limited pie that we're trying to like grab a bigger slice of, you know, the reality, Alan, Americans right now on average are giving 2% of their gross income to anything. And and so if we're fighting over a bigger slice of that 2%, we've already lost. So an abundance mindset would say, I want to compel people 
to get involved in something bigger and to be involved in, in something that's so exciting and so energizing that they want to go from 2% to 3% of their giving. Uh, because it's exciting and it's a better place to put their money than, you know, into the retirement savings or toward the next, you know, new pair of shoes. So that's the case we have to start making as Christian ministry leaders if we want to see those numbers change. So where does that scarcity mindset sort of get into our bloodstream? I, I think it is. It's it it's it's not even a question of when does it get in. It's there already. And so we have to unlearn and unwind everything that we know to be true when we get into organizational leadership. There's this amazing quote from Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, where he says, if his competitor was drowning, he would take a hose and stick it in his mouth and crank it the whole way up. And and I think that that, in America at least, in this context, that hyper-competitive DNA is something that we all share. And we, we really believe that we can only move forward if other people are moving backward. And interestingly, a lot of the best management theorists and like business writers are making the case for collaboration. Adam Grant in the New York Times a month ago, he's a professor at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania, has written a number of great books, Give and Take is one of them. Uh, but he, he wrote a whole feature on this dynamic and how to thrive and survive in the modern economy, companies need to work with their rivals. They need to become friends with their rivals and not try and constantly position themselves against them. He's not making that case from a Christian perspective, just from a, if you want to survive, this is the way to do it in the modern economy. Similarly, Seth Godin, uh, a month before that, made a case on his blog. You know, he's maybe the marketing guru in our country, uh, but made the case for the importance of collaboration and rivals working along alongside each other sharing open-handedly their resources with each other, being really generous toward uh, their competition. And it's, it's actually sort of the counterintuitive way to, to grow is by working together with those we would say are our bitter rivals. I love it when kingdom principles turn out to work <laughs> in, in reality. Uh, we talk a lot about Sabbath here as another one of those that just, it, it doesn't work in our minds but everyone's going, so how the heck does Chick-fil-A make so much money? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the things that don't work, but they do in collaboration being, being one of those. Um, Chris, I'm sure that this has been convicting uh, for multiple areas of, of your life. I'm sure writing on a topic like this, there's been some aha moments for you. Um, how has this affected you personally to be writing on this idea of generosity or generativity? I'll tell you, I, <laughs> I, I have pre-committed myself to a lot, uh, which is fun. Uh, when with writing a book like this, you know, going public with this idea of rooting for rivals, and then you have a fellow nonprofit fundraiser ask how we do, how we do fundraising. Would I get in a call or would I sit down for coffee to talk about our fundraising strategy? It's pretty darn hard to say no. And so I think that there's That's right. there's built-in yeah, accountability. Totally. There's an element of it that we wanted to tie our hands to this and wanted to commit ourselves to doing this even when it's hard and even when it's difficult to create the space to do it. So that's one area that's been, it's been, yeah, really fun, even if it's constraining or challenging at times. I think the other thing is, and we were very clear about this in the book, but recognizing how much we have to grow in this area at Hope International specifically. And, and so it's maybe a topic for a future podcast, but over the course of the last few years since the book came, well, since we stopped, finished writing it and then it came out uh, last year, but over the course of that time, 
we've had some pretty incredible momentum around very significant collaboration with a few of our peer organizations, including uh, Compassion International in your neck of the woods, uh, Tier Fund, Life Church, Chalmers, Partners Worldwide, and a few other organizations uh, that I think could be a great, great opportunity for the kingdom uh, in the years to come. Well, I know you guys are pushing the ball down the field um, with this, and you guys are putting your money where your mouth is at. And um, yeah, I can't imagine uh, writing on on generosity and getting the kind of requests, uh, working with the kind of people that you do. Uh, and just thank you for your contribution, not only to our uh, our thoughts, um, but hopefully our practices within the church, within ministry, even within businesses. I mean, I hope this idea continues to spread. I think our scarcity mentality is holding us back from our next risk from our next collaboration, from the next kingdom impact that we could have, maybe perhaps even from our next city movement. And you guys kind of taking those macro risks. I love to hear that organizations are working together. Uh, Just wanted to focus on the personal uh, for a minute. We try to ask every guest this really simple question. What are some practical things, Chris, that you do to stay healthy? I mean, this could be anything from physical health to just kind of clearing your mind out, time habits. What do you do to stay healthy on a regular basis, Chris? Well, I'm sure it's cliche uh, at almost at this point to talk about liturgy, but um, my uh, one of my favorite books of the last few years is Tish Harrison Warren's Liturgy of the Ordinary. And and then right after that book, I read Andy Crouch's book, TechWise Family. And I think the two of those were so convicting to me as a leader of how I am being shaped and formed by my culture, our culture, uh, and I need to proactively work against that because there are liturgies that are there, whether or not I call them that, like we are being shaped by the liturgies of our culture. So one specific practical thing that after reading through those books that uh, I've made a regular practice, not perfect, I would say 90% effective, but uh, time in silence and scripture before time at the phone. So, you know, I you know, talk about like I wake up before my phone wakes up and and having as much time as I can. And I, I try and push it, you know, as much as I possibly can, even with four young kids, um, to have as much time as I can without my phone, um, before opening up my phone. So that, that's like one simple thing that it's typically 45 minutes to an hour of quiet reading scripture prayer, uh, before I'm opening up my laptop or getting my phone out. So having that quiet grounding time each, each day, uh, five to six days a week has been, incredibly helpful in my own health journey. Awesome. Thanks for the practical. We are always looking for ridiculously practical ways. Uh, And if you're listening and looking for some ridiculously practical ways um, to partner, first of all, pick up this book, Rooting for Rivals, uh, co-written by Chris. And also um, to be able to think about your organization, what do you do really, really well that you can offer to your city, to your space, to to your niche? And then what's an area you need help on? I mean, I just tapped into a friend's genius yesterday and said, I'm so bad at this. Can you please help me? And it wasn't twice as good. It was 100 times as good because she leaned in and used her gifts in that area. So, Chris, thanks for your reminder from this. Can't wait to get my hands on this book. Where can listeners find out more about Hope International and the incredible work you guys are doing? Hopeinternational.org. And don't just check out Hope. Check out all of the peer organizations I mentioned today. I, I would be remiss to only be pointing people to learn more about hope, but I would 
yeah, I encourage you to, to look up Compassion International, Tier Fund, Chalmers, Jobs for Life. If you're looking for great organizations to get involved with, uh, that's a great place to start. Look at you practicing what you preach. Hey, Chris, thanks for having uh, some time with us today on the podcast. Love what you're up to. And uh, again, pick up Chris's book, co-written by Chris and Peter Greer, Rooting for Rivals. Chris, thanks for giving us your time today. Thanks, Alan. Well, I hope you resonate with that episode. I love Chris's thoughts. would encourage you to pick up his book, Rooting for Rivals. At Stay Forth, we don't believe one plus one equals two when it comes to partnership. We believe one plus one can equal a thousand. Maybe that's in your marriage. Maybe that's a friendship. Maybe that's two organizations partnering together. So we just want to leave you with two really simple questions. What's one way you can partner with another leader for greater impact? What's one way you can partner with another leader for greater impact? And what's one way your team or organization can partner with another team or another organization? We are better together. I love the movement back toward partnership, toward collaboration, away from being isolated and lonely and trying to do things all on our own. We are the body of Christ, whether you are a business leader, a family man, a stay-at-home mom, a mathlete, doesn't matter what your role is, what your title is, what your position is, you are part of a body. And we want to see amazing things happen. And to do that, we've got to collaborate. So hopefully this was practical for you. Spend some time on those questions. We love that you're tracking along with this podcast, but we love when you take some advance, you apply something, you make a move because of what you've heard here on these podcasts. We love hearing those stories. So we would love for you to leave us a review, to rate this, to share this with a friend. And we want to remind you, go ahead and follow us on Instagram at Stay Forth Designs. Stay Forth Designs on Instagram. We're going to be releasing some fresh content there that we won't release in any other place. And we want you to be able to grab that. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Right Side Up Leadership Podcast. And yes, we are crazy enough to believe that you can indeed go the distance without losing your soul. So long.